1: President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail. And the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow and forever. President Joe Biden delivering a powerful message
2: to Vladimir Putin and all of Eastern Europe, marking one year of war in Ukraine. We'll have more of his speech from Warsaw in just a moment. Back here at home, we're learning more about the special grand jury that investigated potential 2020 election interference by former president Donald Trump and his allies. Plus, we'll have the latest on the efforts to clean up an environmental disaster in Ohio as federal and state officials take action against the rail company at the center of it. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Wednesday, February 22nd. I'm Jonathan Lemire. Thanks for starting your day with us. Today, President Joe Biden wraps up a historic trip to Eastern Europe. Last night, he gave a speech in Warsaw, Poland, marking one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It followed Monday's surprise visit to Kiev, becoming the first modern American president to set foot in an active war zone where U.S. troops were not on the ground. The president's address yesterday highlighted the resolve of the Ukrainian people and continued to place the blame for the conflict solely on Vladimir Putin.
1: One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv and I can report Kyiv stands strong, Kyiv stands proud, it stands tall. And most important, it stands free. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition. But he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine.
2: Before he flies back to Washington later today, President Biden will meet with Eastern European NATO allies who came together in response to Putin's 2014 annexation of Crimea from Ukraine, the so-called Bucharest 9. President Biden is looking to reassure them that they would have the support of the U.S. and other allies if Putin took military action against them as well. And one day after President's historic visit to Kyiv, five House Republicans made the trip as well. Texas Congressman Michael McCall, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, led a small delegation to Ukraine. While there, they discussed support for Ukraine's military with President Zelensky, who handed them a list of requests, including longer-range artillery and air-to-surface missile systems. The trip highlights a moment of support for Ukraine coming from a divided GOP in the House which has seen some far-right members go as far as to submit bills discouraging any and all future military, financial, and humanitarian aid spending for Ukraine. But Congressman McCall told reporters in Kiev that the momentum in Washington was shifting towards sending the long-range missiles and fighter jets that Ukraine has been asking for. Meanwhile, Russian President Putin escalated tensions yesterday by suspending his country's involvement in the last remaining nuclear arms control treaty with the United States. The U.S. and Russia are the world's two largest nuclear powers, and for more than 50 years, both countries have had some form of agreement to cap the ability to produce or deploy the weapons. In his speech yesterday, Putin emphasized that Russia isn't completely pulling out of the treaty, at least not yet— and his foreign minister later said that Moscow would continue to respect the cap on nuclear weapons. Joining us now live from Warsaw, national security reporter for Politico, our friend Alex Ward. Alex, uh, great to see you uh, again. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the president's speech yesterday. You know, it, it was part of act two of a two part play. The surprise visit to Kiev Monday, followed by this centerpiece speech yesterday in Warsaw and contrast it from the speech he gave at almost the exact same location, almost exactly a year ago.
3: Yeah, I mean, last year's whole vibe really was quite funereal, right? It was him trying to say, hey, a war has begun that I tried to avoid, that we all tried to avoid. And this year, right, again, as you noted, nearly in the same spot, nearly a year, uh, exactly a year later, it was kind of a party atmosphere, which was odd, right? I mean, I was there, and the sec as I was walking up, you could hear Beyoncé blaring, you could hear Bruce Springsteen blaring, uh Twisted Sister, and people were waving US, Polish, Ukrainian flags. Uh, I believe, you know, one of my first reactions was like, This is like a campaign rally for NATO, uh, or for you know, the West. Um, and and that's sort of what Biden's message was: like, hey, you know, hey, West keep winning. Don't get tired of winning. Um, Keep doing this, Uh, that we are doing fine. Of course, Ukraine is the spear, the tip of the spear here. They're the ones who are resisting. They are the ones who are, you know, doing all the suffering. So it wasn't like it was, yay, everything's fine. This is a war. But Biden was really just trying to get everyone united and and saying, hey, guys, we're doing well. Let's keep going. Don't uh, Mm -hmm. don't. The resolve cannot decline. Right. And it's
2: remarkable, of course. A, A year ago, few would have predicted the level of success that Ukraine has had resisting Russia. But the president also warned, and to quote him, that hard days were ahead. And we know that the fighting continues. There's a sense that the Russia's offensive is going to pick up. And Ukraine keeps asking for more and more weapons, including fighter jets. And Congressman McCall, as we just noted, says he thinks there might be some momentum in Washington towards providing those long-range missiles and the fighter jets that Zelensky wants. So far, the administration has balked. What's the latest that you've heard?
3: Well, it's, you know, a lot of Democrats are for it. Uh, that's sort of what's interesting here. And and uh, and a lot of members of Congress are for sending attack and sending uh, F-16s and or other kinds of fighter jets to Ukraine. I mean, there's been tons of pressure from the beginning, which has basically been just give them everything they want, or at least that they can absorb and be trained on uh, in order to defeat Russia. And this always kind of comes down to the question that some critics still have of the administration, which is. Is the U.S. trying to help Ukraine not lose or win? And while would they ma- have may sound semantic? What they're really trying to get at is, you know, a victory. In in these critics' mind is, and, and it's a broad uh, set of critics, but generally speaking, it's about expelling all Russian troops from Ukraine. That includes Crimea. And then there are others, uh, and some of these folks are within the Biden administration, uh, but, but mostly without. And they would say, look, I mean, it, we will do, we will support whatever Ukraine wants to do and whatever they can accept, whatever they will negotiate with Russia whenever a peace talk comes. Um, So, so far, I have not heard that there's any movement within the administration on sending F-16s and attack or other long-range missiles. But the, the pattern throughout this entire crisis has been for the U.S., we're not going to send this thing, and then they eventually send that thing. Right. We'll certainly keep an eye on that going forward. Alex, uh, lastly and briefly, we
2: heard from President Putin yesterday in Moscow, but perhaps more importantly, even than his bluster, uh, was the fact that there was a visit from the Chinese foreign minister uh, to Moscow. What's the latest there in terms of whether China is going to increase or reduce its support for Moscow?
3: Yes, I mean China at this point has been saying, uh, or the U.S. has been saying that China might be providing uh, some weapons or material support to Russia. In which case, uh, and if that is true, um, and we you know we have not really seen all the intelligence on this yet or seen that movement, but if this is happening, um, that is quite an escalation by China, and, and in which case, uh, this war will have gotten quite more World War E um, than than before. So the U.S. has been warning about this. And uh, we'll, and it looks like the partnership between Russia and China, if true, uh, is only growing stronger, not weaker.
2: Yeah. And certainly so there'll be major ramifications economically and militarily if that is the case. Live from Warsaw, national security reporter for Politico Alex Ward. Thank you so much for joining us today. Meanwhile, back here at home, the foreperson of the Fulton County special grand jury that investigated potential 2020 election interference by former President Trump is speaking out. Emily Coors says she can't say too much because of the judge's order, but she did reveal the grand jury recommended indicting more than a dozen people and that many of the names are recognizable. She gave her first TV interview to NBC's Blaine Alexander. Take a look.
4: How many people? Was this a
5: long list? It's not a short list. Um, I'm trying really hard to be careful with that because Judge McBurney had a hearing on the report, as I'm sure you know, and chose specifically to not release the list of people um, and to only release the certain portions of the report. And I do not want to imply in any way that my judgment is better than the judge. Um, so I, I've been trying to be really careful with that. Um, I will tell you, it's, it's not a short list. No. I mean, we saw 75 people, and there are six pages of the report cut out, I think, if you look at the page numbers. So, it's not... So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes.
6: Did the grand jury recommend an indictment of former President Trump?
5: I'm not going to speak on exact indictments.
6: Would we be surprised? Are there bombshells of who is I don't think, for indictment?
5: I don't think that there are any giant plot twists coming. I don't think that there are any, like, giant... That's not the way I expected this to go at all. I, I don't think that's in store for anyone.
6: So nothing that would surprise people who have been following this?
5: Uh, probably not. Um, I wouldn't want to characterize anyone else's reaction, of course. But, say so that was something we heard a lot in testimony. Um, but probably not. It probably wouldn't shock you. I would not... Expect you to be too shocked. No. And that includes the former president. Potentially. Potentially. It might.
2: We'll read into all of that as you will. Coors was also interviewed by several print outlets, including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And according to the AJC, Coors rolled her eyes and laughed when told that President Trump called the partial release of the report a, quote, total exoneration. The paper writes... Did he really say that, she asked? Oh, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. I love it. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis convened the grand jury in May of last year and ended it this past month. The grand jury's full report will be made public when Willis concludes her investigation. There's no precise timetable on that. Still ahead, the latest from Ohio, where the EPA has ordered Norfolk Southern to clean up the site of the toxic train derailment as the company faces new legal action. Plus, former President Trump has racked up millions in legal bills. We're digging into new reporting about how exactly he's paying them off. Those stories and a check on the weather when we come right back.
7: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: Welcome back. The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered Norfolk Southern to clean up the trail derailment and toxic chemical spill along the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. The train derailed nearly three weeks ago in East Palestine, Ohio. The order requires the rail operator to identify and clean up any contaminated soil and water, pay all EPA costs, and participate in public meetings at the agency's request. If the company fails to do so, the EPA says it will take over and charge Norfolk Southern triple the cost. In
7: no way, shape or form will Norfolk Southern get off the hook for the mess that they created. Folks, I know this order cannot undo the nightmare that families in this town have been living with. But it will begin to deliver
2: much needed justice for the pain that Norfolk Southern has caused. Action is also being taken at the state level. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro says his office has made a criminal referral to the acting attorney general there. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signaled yesterday that his office is also preparing to take legal action. Meanwhile, former President Trump says he will visit East Palestine today. He posted about it over the weekend, saying that people, quote, need help unclear what his agenda will be there. Plus, consumer environmental advocate Erin Brockovich says she plans to host a town hall in East Palestine on Friday. Speaking before President Trump, his Save America Political Action Committee spent about $10 million on law firms representing him in private legal disputes last year. That's according to Federal Election Commission filings obtained by The New York Times. A total of $16 million from Trump's PAC went toward his legal expenses in 2021 and 2022. The Times reports that some of that $16 million appears to have been for lawyers representing witnesses in investigations related to Trump's efforts to cling to power after the 2020 election. The filings also show a majority of the money, about $10 million, went to firms directly representing Trump in a string of investigations and lawsuits, including some related to his company. The newspaper reports, quote, the recent spending related to Mr. Trump is notable not just for the sheer volume. It represented about 19 percent of the PAC's total expenditures outside of transfers to one of his other political committees and those backing other candidates, but also because Mr. Trump is now a declared candidate for president again. Still ahead, we'll turn to sports and an emotional night in East Lansing. The Michigan State men's basketball team played its first home game since the deadly mass shooting on campus. We'll have that for you next on Way to Learn.
7: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
0: Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.
8: It is the first home game here at Michigan State in East Lansing. It's a mass shooting on campus, took the precious lives of three students and critically injured five others. Spartan strong are the words that adorn the warm-up shirts of the Michigan State and the Indiana Hoosier players, as well as signs of strength. And unity can be found all around the arena. Indiana has come here to East Lansing, and it's been the story of recently they're going to walk out with a loss.
2: Spartan strong. Michigan State earned an emotional win last night, defeating number 17 Indiana 80-65 to in the Spartans' first home game since a mass shooting on campus eight days earlier. You saw it there, head coach Tom Izzo, fighting back tears after the final buzzer, and he later reflected on his team's return to the court in East
5: Lansing.
2: I just think everybody did a hell of a job, and most of all, um,
8: the fans, students, and the community. I wish I could have ran up to that top row and thanked the people that were there, um, I just I did I just looked around that's all I did was look around and and all the bad set times with this job it was one of those moments where I just said uh, boy am I'm, I'm a lucky guy and uh, I said to myself I hope we can come through for you that's what I was thinking
2: A really nice touch for the Indiana players to wear those Spartan Strong shirts as well. Let's turn now to the NBA, where Atlanta's head coach will not be returning to the Hawks after the All-Star break. The team yesterday fired Nate McMillan, who has been unable to build on the success of leading to the Hawks to the 2021 Eastern Conference Finals that had earned him the full-time position. Atlanta's currently disappointing season in one game below 500, and in eighth place in the East, so they would be in that play-in game. The Hawks will host the Cleveland Cavaliers Friday night with assistant Joe Prunty, now interim head coach. Let's go to the NHL, and we had a milestone up in Edmonton. With two goals in last night's 4-2 win over the Philadelphia Flyers, Oilers superstar Connor McDavid notched his 800 points in his career. Playing in just his 545th NHL game, McDavid is the fifth fastest player in league history to reach that mark. He is so fun. He's my Boys' favorite non Bruins NHL player. And finally, we return to the college basketball court, this time at Virginia Tech, where Hokies fans were rooting for more than just a win against Miami last night. Take a look.
1: In the NCAA tournament, for
8: sure. Now, they have some vulnerabilities. Now, we got to get this here. After
2: Jordan Miller missed that free throw, the crowd's going nuts. Here's why if he misses the second one, everybody in this house gets free bacon. Bacon for everybody. Unfortunately, that promotional prize, as delicious as it may be, was all the fans would take home yesterday as the Hokies fell to the Hurricanes 76-70. to 70. But Angie Lastman's here with the weather and, frankly... I don't care if my team wins or loses. If I'm walking out with free bacon, I'm fine.
4: It's amazing what will bring people together.
2: Bacon, <laughs> free, free bacon. Free for bacon.
0: Everybody. All right, Jonathan, we've got a lot to talk about weather-wise. We have a major winter storm system that's been working across the country. You can see more than 60 million people are included in these winter alerts that are already up, extending basically from the West Coast to the East Coast. And we're expecting ample amounts of snow, especially in the Northern Plains. Where we could see over a foot of snow for Rapid City, Minneapolis could deal with um, historic snowfall amounts up to two feet in some spots. And you can see as we get into the Northeast and New England area, we will have a couple of inches in some some places. Boston, you'll pick up on an inch or so. Now, we're also expecting some ice accumulation. This is going to make power outages and uh, difficult travel for folks in uh, the Great Lakes and extending into the Northeast. And we also have some severe weather for parts of the South, not to mention some very warm temperatures, potential record breaking temperatures. Warmest temperatures in some spots, Jonathan, for the entire month of February. So 90s in Orlando, possibly, over the next
4: couple of days.
2: 90s in Orlando. All right. Angela Asman, thank you. I know what you're going to go have for (laughs) breakfast. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, a look at the different strategies some Republican White House hopefuls are using when it comes to dealing with Donald Trump. We'll explore those in just a moment. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It is 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, which means it's 2.30 a.m. out West. I'm John Lemire Thanks for being with us. Former President Donald Trump is again going on the offensive against the man that many say is his biggest threat to securing the 2024 Republican primary nomination. That, of course, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. On social media yesterday, Trump ripped DeSantis for the crowd size at an event he spoke at on Staten Island in New York City this week calling it, quote, small and unenthusiastic. He also blasted Fox News for covering the event while ignoring a recent rally of his own. In a second post on Truth Social, Trump unveiled a new nickname for DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, which is an apparent playoff of his previous Ron DeSantis' insult, he stayed away from Meatball Ron, even though i agree that's a classic. In that post, Trump also went so far as to praise former Florida Governor Charlie Crist, a Republican-turned-Democrat, as a way to try to dismiss DeSantis' popularity in the state. Of course, DeSantis routed Crist last November. Trump's also seizing on a proposal made by one of his 2024 primary opponents, Nikki Haley, seemingly in an effort to one-up her. After Haley called for mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75 last week, Trump took things a step further yesterday. On social media, he called for both mental and physical fitness tests for all presidential candidates, writing, quote, "...being an outstanding president requires great mental acuity and physical stamina. If you don't have those qualities or traits, it is likely you won't succeed. It's unclear if Donald Trump has looked in a mirror recently." Meanwhile, Republicans with an eye on 2024 appear to be using different strategies when it comes to dealing with Trump. Here's what Haley said about the former president yesterday, compared to what New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, another rumored 2024 candidate, what he had to say.
9: How do you beat Trump? You know, I
5: kick forward. I talk about Joe Biden. I'm not worried about Trump. This is about making sure we do something different and leave the status quo behind. We can't keep losing. It is time that Americans know what it's like to win again. We have lost enough. We've talked about bad past history issues enough. Let's start focusing on getting our country back. Let's get rid of socialism. Let's get rid of this defeatism and let's show our kids what it means to love their country. A strong America, a proud America. That's what we're going to do.
1: Look, my message to President, about President Trump is we thank you for your service. Great. But we're moving on. Americans are not in the mode of just settling. Right? We're never going to say that the next, the best opportunity for tomorrow's leadership is yesterday's leadership. We want the next generation. We want the next big idea. We want the next piece of technology. And so it is in the American spirit to say we're going after the next thing and the next individual to lead our party and to lead this country. So it could be a variety of individuals. I just, um, former the former president is kind of baked in. Either you're with him or you're not. I don't think anything is going to get his poll numbers up. And as this race actually heats up and people start paying attention, there's just going to be a lot of other options on the table. Joining us now,
2: national politics reporter for The Hill, Julia Manchester. Julia, good to see you again. Um, let's talk about those two very different approaches on display there, uh, from Haley and Sununu. Republican strategists that you speak to uh, who are expecting other candidates to jump in the race, whether that's DeSantis, Pompeo, Pence, the list goes on and on. How do they think, uh, what do they think will be the most effective way of taking on Donald
1: Trump?
6: Yeah, it's good to see you again, too, Jonathan. Look, I think going forward, a lot of Republican strategists are saying that they really need to hone in on this line of a new generation. You saw Sununu and you saw Haley mention it there. And a lot of that could be related to age or maybe even a change in policies. However, um, I think it's mostly age because you hear Republican strategists and operatives saying that, you know, Republican primary voters don't necessarily have a problem with Trump's policies. Trump's policies policies um, are very popular with those voters. However, um, a lot of Republican primary voters, and you see this poll after poll, are really pushing for a new generation, sort of a new, fresher face to lead the party. And I think you are seeing a number of potential 2024 contenders really zero in on that. And it's not just the 2024 contenders, Jonathan, that are talking about this. I thought it was remarkable to hear Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the Arkansas Mm -hmm. governor, in her State of the Union address, while she praised Trump and her speech was, very trumpian she talked about the need for new young blood so i think the status quo or the i guess the modus operandi going forward for these 2024 contenders according to these operatives are tout trump's policies tout that america first uh, you know policy platform but talk about the need for a new generation which basically means we like trump's policies but trump himself should take a back seat at this point
2: yeah, we certainly know, though, that Trump has a loyal base of followers who likely aren't going anywhere. But there does seem to be a hunger, at least in parts of the party, for, yes, a new voice. Um, so far, though, you, I mean, you know you can't beat something with nothing. And the only candidate who's jumped in is Nikki Haley. What's the early sense as to how the party leaders you've spoken to as to how her rollout has gone?
6: I've heard really good things about her rollout. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at her rollout, it was very well done. And she has obviously an entire news cycle behind her. She's been able to get out in front of the Ron DeSantis's, the Mike Pence's, the Mike Pompeo's, the list goes on and get that news coverage for herself. Additionally, I you know, even though, um, you know, it was a controversial comment, um, you know, a certain uh, comment from an, another anchor on another network about her. Uh, uh, being past her prime, I don't think that necessarily hurt her, because it's drawing a lot of the attention to her and really drawing attention to the fact that she's the only woman—you know, potentially maybe uh, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem could ju- jump in—but it's drawing attention to that, and she's able to talk about that, to speak about that. So I think that's good in its own right. And she's—look, uh, in terms of chatting about what's happening on the ground, she had her rollout in a major swing—or uh, or early primary state, I should say of South Carolina, and she's getting out to Iowa and New Hampshire early as an official candidate. That being said, though, I think once the the legislative session wraps in Florida, you're going to see Ron DeSantis start to jump in. Tim Scott, another South Carolinian, very much leaning towards this. Um, You know, other candidates, Mike Pence or potential candidates making the rounds as well. So it's not going to be the Nikki Haley show for much longer.
2: Yeah, Haley, Got attention and fundraised off of that cable news comment. The Hills, Julia Manchester, good work. Thanks for being with us this morning. Still ahead here. We're gonna go live to CNBC for an early look at the markets following the worst day on Wall Street of the year so far. Oof. Plus, Meta takes a page out of Twitter's playbook with new plans for paid subscriptions to both Facebook and Instagram. We'll have the details next on Way Too Early. Time now for business. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Jumana Briseche, who joins us live from London. Jumana, the report from Wall Street yesterday says here just ay, ay, ay. It was the worst day of a year. Uh, markets crushed. Um, what led to such a disastrous day and how are things looking this morning?
9: Mm, I believe that is the technical sound, the iii sound, mm-hmm. especially because yesterday was the worst trading day of the year so far. Not a good one at all. We saw the S&P Dow in the session two percentage points lower, the Nasdaq down two and a half percentage points lower. Investors once again are fretting over rising interest rates, especially with the 10-year yield now approaching 4% and the terminal rate now approaching 5.4%. But it wasn't all in interest rates. There's a lot of focus as well on company earnings. Home Depot in focus, the stock was down seven percentage points after posting a subdued outlook for the rest of the year concerns about consumer demand for the rest of 2023 but today futures are kind of looking a little up they're trading around the flat line the focus is going to be on those fomc minutes those will be a read across from the last federal reserve meeting perhaps we'll get more clues on how they're thinking
2: A little bit of green on the board there, at least to start the day. So, Jamana, according to a Bank of America research note, Meta's new verified subscription service could land nearly 12 million subscribers by 2024. Tell us about the subscription service and how do you think they'd make that number?
9: Yeah. Really interesting uh, comment there from Bank of America. So over the weekend, Meta announced that they're launching a paid verification service similar to what Twitter announced back in December. This would be applicable to both Instagram and Facebook users. Now, Bank of America put this note out overnight saying that they expect there to be 12 million subscribers to that service by 2024, generating $1.7 billion in total revenue. Just to give you an idea, but a little bit of context, it is estimated that currently Twitter Blue service only has 300,000 subscribers and the appeal is what the analyst is saying is mainly to creators and influencers, less so to consumers and businesses. But it is going to be an opportunity for many of the influencers out there to get a bigger reach, to get more visibility, and to get their name out there with that very coveted blue tick. So we're going to see how this all transpires. But that number, $12 for 2024, is certainly a big one.
2: Yeah, the Musk rollout of the Verify users halting, uh, to say the least. Uh, Jumana, uh, quickly and lastly, spring break prices surging as travelers look to return to pre-pandemic yes. bookings in the weeks ahead.
9: That's right. Spring break demand is back and it's boosting hotel prices as well as, well as airfare prices. Uh, travel app Hopper said that domestic airfare is now averaging $264 a round trip for March and April. That is up from 20% a year ago and still 5% above pre-pandemic levels the CEO of Frontier Airlines told CNBC that this is expected to be the strongest for spring break ever. And the reason for that is it is the first spring break in the Biden administration since those negative COVID test requirements were removed. So people are back and doing a bit of revenge travel, as they call it.
2: Revenge travel <laughs> sounds... Fun. CNBC's (laughs) Jumana Bersetche live from London. Thank you as always. Still ahead, we're going to move back to the war in Ukraine with expert analysis on the state of the conflict from a retired U.S. Army colonel. Plus, we'll dig into a new round of Russian sanctions that are expected to come from the Biden administration. Way Too Early is coming right back with all of that. Welcome back. We return now to the war in Ukraine. The Biden administration is expected to impose new sanctions on about 200 russian people and entities this week that's according to sources cited by the wall street journal who say the sanctions target several russian governors and family members of the russian government it's part of a larger effort to stop moscow from accessing critical materials that can bolster its military and technology the sanctions are included in a package of measures drafted by the white house to provide an additional 460 million dollars in aid for ukraine Joining us now, retired U.S. Army Colonel Jack Jacobs. He is a military analyst for NBC News. Colonel, thanks for being here this morning. So the one-year mark of the war is later this week. Um, much has been said about the surprising resistance that Ukraine has been able uh, to put up. Um, what are a few things that, as we approach this anniversary, that really stand out for you?
8: Well, first, the resistance of the Ukrainians. Second, the ability of the United States to get the rest of NATO to back, uh, back our efforts to support the Ukrainians. You know, they're heavily reliant on Russian energy. It took some time for us to convince the West that it was important to support the Ukrainians uh, in every way, including with arms. But the most surprising thing was the ineptitude of the Russians, the Russian forces, Uh, They don't teach their people like we teach our soldiers how to integrate all the uh, means of applying military pressure. They don't integrate tanks, artillery, infantry, intelligence into one coherent mass in order to overcome enemy positions. They piecemeal everything that they do. Uh, And that's been demonstrated, particularly around Kiev, but also in the east. In addition to that, they don't have an NCO Corps that's worth anything. They're not allowed to make decisions. Indeed, their middle-level managers, majors, colonels, lieutenant colonels, they can't make decisions either. And as a result, they have to bring generals up to the front lines to change orders and make decisions, which is one reason why they've lost so many general officers. They're, they're, they're going to continue to do this because they haven't learned their lesson. And it
2: slows down the decision making process, obviously. The, um, uh, certainly though, there was almost a, I wouldn't say celebratory, but close to celebratory feel in the speech given by President Biden yesterday. But he also warned that hard days are ahead. Uh, just give us your sense your analysis right now of where the fighting stands, focused largely in the east and the south. It's incremental progress at best on both sides as the weather's uh, been tough. But as it warms up, what do you anticipate from both sides?
8: Well, somebody is going to conduct a spring offensive and it looks like it's going to be the Russians. However, uh, the Russians ought to know that the the defense always has a three-to-one advantage. And as a result, maybe they're waiting for the Ukrainians to conduct counterattacks, but they have to go across the river, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. And particularly in the spring, when it gets very mucky, and that's an area where there's a great deal of mud, it's difficult to operate both on foot and in track vehicles. So it's going to be a long slog. I think uh, both sides are in for the long haul. The Russians always... Uh, revert to the, their default, uh, tactic, and that is to shell civilian areas, Mm. shell railheads, shell ammunition dumps, and, uh, and places where troops, where Ukrainian troops coalesce. It'll be interesting to see who counterattacks first. But at the end of the day, we might have just a long stalemate in the Donbass in the east and in the south.
2: And it's going to matter, perhaps, which side can better supply uh, their troops to break through. Indeed, uh, Retired U.S. Army Colonel Jack Jacobs, we'd love to have you back soon. Thank you, Thank you for being with us this morning. Up next here on Way Too Early, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy placates the far-right members of his party, reopening the debate for January 6th. And coming up on Morning Joe, more from President Biden's speech yesterday in Warsaw as we approach the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Plus, we'll have live reporting from Poland as Biden meets with NATO leaders, before heading back to Washington. Also ahead, we'll hear from HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge, who will be traveling with the Vice President today to promote a new plan aimed at cutting costs for homeowners. Morning Joe, just a few short moments away.